Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, this is the third week uh, in a series through 1 John uh, that we are calling Light and Love. Uh, it's a, 1 John is a short uh, but important book. It contains a lot of truth. Uh, John is a, is a masterful writer, the, the Gospel of John, and uh, we believe that the, first, the same person uh, wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John is a, is a beautiful piece of writing that's a bit like an onion. You can just continue to peel back the layers of meaning and, and the profound nature of the book. And 1st John is, a, is a very similar to that. And so if you, are, uh, if you are new to reading the Scriptures, I would encourage you that 1st John is a great place to start. Uh, for the exact reason that it has rich and profound truths about who God is, about how he is revealed in Jesus Christ, and yet it is also very accessible. Uh, you can pick it up, you can read it uh, just as it is and be encouraged and be challenged. And so I, I would encourage you, if you've not read First John, uh, or if it's been a while, to return to it this week. Uh, it's very easy to read in one sitting. I want to give you an idea of kind of where we've been. We're going to begin in kind of the second half of chapter two, but here's where we've been so far. Uh, in the first week, we talked about how Christianity is uh, a lot like joining a dance, uh, and we, we queued off of John's term uh, koinonia, which is the Greek term. We often translate it fellowship, uh, but it's not just potlucks. Uh, it's, it's really about a participation in the divine life of Christ and of God. And so we talked about how Christianity is like joining a dance. It isn't so much about the knowledge that you have or whether you have the language to talk about it, but it's really about getting involved and getting in the middle of participating in God's divine life. And uh, last week what we talked about is, is one of John's central images and central statements of the book, which is God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And we talked about how right after that, John invites us then to walk in the light. Uh, and we learned that walking in the light, as it's framed by John, is, is really about obeying God's commands and then loving our brothers and sisters. Uh, and our brothers and sisters throughout Scripture is used to talk about uh, our actual brothers and sisters. It's also used to talk about kind of humanity, right? That we are called to love people. Uh, but it's also talked about in terms of loving our fellow Christians, those who are believers, who have placed their faith in Christ. And so uh, looking at Scripture, kind of using all three of those ways, what John is talking about here is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we talked about how walking in the light, uh, and loving our brothers and sisters is really uh, learning to love one another with whom we have all, the, all in common or something as foundational as belief in Christ in common is really a training ground that will then help us to love other people, those who maybe aren't so much like us or that we don't have that much in common with. And so uh, it, it became a, a really important thing about how uh, loving one another inside of the community of Christ is a training ground for learning to love people in the world. I hope that you left encouraged and challenged last week as we explored those themes. And, and th this week or this morning, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> uh, I want to look at a big passage of Scripture 
uh, because what John does, his teaching continues uh, to flow right out of where we've been and what we've been talking about, but it includes language uh, that I think has the possibility to really trip us up, particularly if you have a church background or if you've grown up in the church. uh, The passage that we're going to talk about this morning has some language in it that I think could uh, misguide us or take us off the track, and so we're going to uh, our, our goal today is to try to get past uh, our autopilot ways of hearing Scripture and, and really determine what John is saying. And so uh, it'll be up on the screen uh, if you have your tablets or if you have your Bible uh, with you, or if you need a Bible, there should be one somewhere in your zip code underneath the seats. Um, but I want to read a, a lengthy passage of Scripture, 1 John 2. Uh, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, And so hang with me together as we read this this passage of Scripture. Uh, But it says this, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. For this is how that we know that it is the last hour. Now they went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Uh, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all, and all of you know the truth. For I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. For who is a liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Now, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that, you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, for if it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised to us, eternal life. So I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. For as for you, the anointing that you receive from him remains in you, and you do not not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Verse 28. And now, now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears... We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous and you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, dear friends, we are, we are children born of God, and, and uh, what we have will not yet been, has not been yet made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that we might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. For no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. For dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. For The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. And the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now the reason the Son of God appeared 
was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. And so this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you grew up in any evangelical church in America, there is likely some terminology in this passage that is quite loaded for you. Uh, You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, With terms like the last hour and antichrist, we immediately wonder how this passage fits into the puzzle of pieces that make the end times. (laughs) Uh, over the past 40 or 50 years in America, there have been, uh, there's been a swelling interest uh, in what has been called the end times. In particular, there has been an interest in putting pieces together uh, that map out events of end times, such as rapture, the rise of the Antichrist, and a period of tribulation. And for anyone who takes this approach to reading the scripture, a key piece of that puzzle is identifying the single personality known as the Antichrist. The Antichrist then is believed by many to be a single personality that will rise out of the Middle East uh, to promote a one-world religion, uh, establish commerce with the mark of the beast, etc., etc., etc. And if you've grown up with this approach uh, to Scripture, just hearing the terms last hour and the terms Antichrist uh, will mean that you are already uh, reading a whole set of beliefs uh, into the text. Uh, but the goal when reading Scripture is, is not to bring our own worldview to the Scripture, uh, but rather to seek and understand the worldview of the author and the audience that first heard it and then learn from that. I want to say that again because uh, that is really, really important biblical understanding kind of stuff. The goal when reading Scripture is not to read our worldview into the Scripture, but to seek to understand the worldview of the author and the audience and then learn from that in our own context. Does that make sense? So we're not taking everything that we understand or assume and then reading it into the scripture. We're trying to seek and understand their world so that we can begin to pull things out and apply it into our own life and our own context. Uh, And so so here is, uh, and this is a bit bold of me, Uh, But here's my encouragement to you as your pastor. Uh, Anything that is about end-time puzzle making, uh, I encourage you to throw all of that out. Um, And if you have questions about that, if you're uncertain about that, um, over the course of of the several years that I've been here, we've done a few different series on uh, apocalyptic literature, on Revelation. Uh, You can go back to our kind of podcast archives and listen to those, and I'll unpack all of that. Uh, But for this morning, I just simply want to say that any kind of approach to eschatology, which is that is the study of the end, so any approach to understanding the end times as it's revealed in Scripture, if it is hinged on piecing a bunch of headlines together uh, to to, to decipher some Bible code, uh, I would say throw that whole system out. (laughs) Okay? And I say that with all the love and, and pastoral care in my heart. So, Uh, In other words, if the disciples were sitting here in worship with us, or the church fathers and mothers uh, were here, they would would actually know nothing of the sort. 
uh, they, they would have no idea about this kind of piecing puzzle pieces together uh, to try to understand in times. Um, so, so to understand this passage, what we need to do is to understand their context and hear it as best as we can uh, with their ears. And so the question becomes, when we approach a passage of Scripture like this, with terminology like last hour and Antichrist and Antichrists, uh, the question becomes, uh, what is John trying to say to the house churches uh, that he was in charge of when he talks about them living in the last hour? And, and when he says, in fact, the Antichrist are already here. What is he talking about? Because if we, if we read our like, assumed eschatology uh, into that, then we might say uh, John was wrong, because this was written like thousands of years ago. That doesn't quite seem like the last hour. Uh, and, and if he says the Antichrist is already here, then we might say, oh, he's wrong again. Uh, was he just misinformed? Like we have, some, we have some work to do to understand like, what exactly is going on. So, so let's, let's just kind of approach this uh, seeking to understand it from John's perspective and the perspective of these house churches that he's in charge of. Uh, because the problem is that when we hear the last hour, uh, we immediately go to like end of the world calamity, right? Like we immediately have all these apocalyptic uh, images in our mind. Uh, most Will Smith movies come instantly to mind, right? Like whether it's robots or aliens or something like the world is going down, right? Uh, so when we hear last hour, we think, oh, Will Smith and apocalyptic stuff. Uh, but for John, it's actually quite different. Uh, what, see, he sees that because of Christ, uh, he, John, and his community of house churches are, are living at the end, and this is what he means, He's, they're living at the end of the age of darkness and the beginning of the age of light. And he actually hinted at this in chapter 2, verse 8, when he says, the darkness is passing away because the true light is already shining. Do you remember when I said last week in relation to that, what if that was our approach to how Christians engage with culture? Or what if that was our personal approach on whether we choose to be cynical or not when we look at the world? What if Christians could just look at all the stuff that's going on in the world and in culture and begin to say, the light is winning, <laughs> right? And darkness is passing away. And so actually what John is, is, for John, the coming of Christ, his death and resurrection are all the definitive signs that are needed that a new age is coming and in fact has already come. You with me? In other words, in the coming of Jesus, John sees the dawn of a brand new age. And so he can say, in full confidence that we are living in the last hour. Because for him, the coming of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, people don't rise from the dead, they don't do that. That belongs to an age or a time that is different than our own. And so with John, for John, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is in fact the, all the definitive signs of a brand new age that is dawning. And so for him, the age of darkness is passing, and they are on the cusp of a new age of light and of love. You with me? So 
I think that's what he means. And, and actually, this perspective isn't unique to John at all. It's actually all over the New Testament. When you understand kind of the Jewish mindset and how they understood history, you begin to see this, the evidences of this all over the place. Now, more commonly in the New Testament, it's talked about as the present age and then the age to come. And so what Jesus, Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter 10, where he references this is going to be true in the age to come. Paul talks about this in several spots, most notably in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, and Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians 1 says, Grace and peace to you from our Lord, from, the, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the opening of Galatians, right? Like that, that is a powerful introduction to a letter. Uh, we, emails don't sound like that. I would be willing to bet you haven't gotten an email that sounded like that, <laughs> right? But here is a handwritten letter. I greet you in the name of God, our Father and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who by the death of, for our sins has rescued us from this present evil age. To him be all glory and honor and praise. Amen. Right? And so for Paul, the very specific vocation of Jesus Christ in his death is to rescue us out of what he calls this present evil age. And then he goes on in Ephesians, he says, The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. You see, when you begin to look at it and, and see the, all over in the New Testament is this idea of two ages. And the reason we find it all over the New Testament is because the Jewish concept of the end was, in fact, two ages. One defined by sin and decay. The other age defined by blessing and peace. And so these two ages were markers in history. And what happened is the typical Jewish person would have believed that one, the, pre, the, the age defined by, by sin and decay, would come to a definitive end and then usher in the new age of blessing and peace. But what early Christians began to realize and see is that the ages were still distinct in what defined them, but that the ages actually overlapped. Does this make sense? If you have been at Emmaus Road for any length of time, you've heard me talk about this a dozen times. I promise I'm going to keep talking about it, <laughs> right? Some, some of our longtime folks are like, yep, heard this before. It's time for me to get in a good nap. Stick with me, right? Because we need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. That this is beautiful, beautiful truth of what God is up to in the world. The earliest Christians began to see that the ages were still distinct in what defined them, but that they overlapped. And so as I just mentioned, Paul opens his letter in Galatians with a greeting in the name of the Lord Jesus who has rescued us from the present evil age. Well, guess how he ends Galatians? He will end Galatians by encouraging Christians in Galatia to not return to the slavery of the present age. He says, you have been born into this new creation, so don't return to the slavery of the present evil age and all the, all the sin and decay that rules there, but rather stay true to your identity as a child of God who lives in this new age. Are you with me? 
This is good news, right? And Paul is trying to encourage the, the Christians in Galatia. Now, what, so Paul and Jesus will use terminology of this present age uh, and the age to come. John's treatment is much more symbolic, <laughs> right? True to John. His gospel is the most symbolic, the most layered, the most, uh, most filled with metaphor and all these kinds of things. And so John's treatment of this same concept is more uh, symbolic. And he says, light and dark. Light and darkness. And essentially what he says, and, and, and this, the, like the light and the darkness is just this recurring theme that comes up over and over and over again in 1 John. Paul, or, or John just really wants us to get a hold of it and to understand it. And, and essentially what he is saying throughout this book is that the light is chasing away the darkness. The age of light is dawning through the activity of the light of the world. Did you catch that? The age of light is dawning with the activity of the light of the world. <laughs> and that's good news for the world. And so what this could mean for us is, listen, we could be really negative. Our approach, our disposition to the world as the people of God could be really negative. Do you, do you know any Christians like that? Yes. <laughs> do you know any Christians who are like, you know what, the world is just going to hell. So we just need to hunker down and wait it out. <laughs> That's, and, and you certainly have that option, right? That's one option of how to approach the world and, and a disposition to have. But far better, I think, is shedding the cynicism and begin to see the good in the world, the good in culture, the beauty of creation. This is a great Sunday to talk about the beauty of creation. Happy Earth Day, church. <laughs> Earth Day should almost be on the liturgical calendar, right? Like, like we were a little bit late getting around to loving God's creation as the people of God, but when the rest of culture kind of caught up, we said, oh yeah, we should be doing this too, right? And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Creation is, is good. And when, when God got to the very end, he said, it is very good. <laughs> and so there's this reality of we could just say, oh, world and culture and all this is all bad and it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Let's hunker down. Let's wait it out. And let's try to get as many people in our bubble as we can. Or we could learn to see the beauty of culture, the beauty of creation, the beauty of the world, the beauty of creation itself. And learn to see the beauty in the mundane moments. And learn to see the great gifts we receive each day. I want to share about this from a parent's perspective. And I know that not all of you are there where you, have, where you have children the same age as mine. But, but man, when your kids are, are young, life is just like this, like this blur. Uh, and and you just like, you're just trying to get them growed up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like you're just trying to get them to learn how to do the stuff that they got to learn how to do. And, and, and you're just like, oh, and you, you've got all these responsibilities and you're going here and there and you're, and, and you feel some pressure. Like, I don't know if, like, I don't think they felt this pressure in the eighties when I was growing up, but, but like just all this pressure to give your kids lots of experiences, you know, like they got to be in everything. They got to experience everything because the world is wide out there. And so you're like just trying to do all this stuff, but, but Here's what, I want, here's what I want to say, parents with, with young kids. And, and I would say this is true for everybody, but in particular, there are 
beautiful moments in the mundane of every day. Like it won't be for my daughter's entire life that she wants to climb up on my lap and just snuggle. And it it won't be my whole life when my youngest daughter is learning to read. And I get to see kind of the magic of that begin to click. You see what I'm saying? And, and I'm working on this. I, 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 Amy, my wife will tell you, I am not the most positive, happy-go-lucky person in the world. Like, I, I, I battle cynicism all the time. But, but, but I, I wonder, like, if we just take this approach of God's new age God's new world is here. It's overlapping. And and what that means is that the light is winning. It is chasing away the darkness. And if we have that, we can either be all negative, oh, this is terrible, or we can embrace that truth and begin to see beauty in the world and the good gifts that we receive every day. Are you with me? Now, you may not be able to identify with my examples, but I can tell you that there there are good gifts that you receive and there is beauty in some of the mundane moments. And I think one of the greatest gifts that we can receive and one of the greatest things we can do is learn to see the beauty in every day. of the time when New Testament authors talk about the final hour or time being short, they are referring to the dawn of the age to come, not some apocalyptic nightmare. See, the problem is if we read apocalyptic nightmare into those phrases of of last hour, time is short, then, then guess what? We miss the beauty of that passage. That passage is trying to point us to something positive and beautiful, not trying to point us to some apocalyptic nightmare. And the dawn of the new age is hinged on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what I want you, if you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus has ushered in a new age in our world. And so it may be time to let go of all that stuff about trying to predict the end, or it may be time to stop listening to voices that look at news headlines and say, we knew this was going to happen because the Bible lays it all out. <laughs> I think that, in my view, that is a misreading of Scripture. Okay, so that's the, that was all about verse 1, where it says the final hour. <laughs> Who's ready to move on to Antichrist? Yay, all right, let's do that. That sounds fun. Okay, so what about John's use of the term Antichrist? Again, in our day, there are whole theological systems built upon the identification of one person who is the Antichrist, Then they draw out of the book of Revelation to talk about the actions of the Antichrist that I mentioned earlier, uh, about the one world religion and the commerce with the mark of the beast and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but here's the problem. The term Antichrist doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. And in fact, it only appears five times uh, in Scripture as a whole, uh, and that is four times in 1 John and one time in 2 John. So if you want to know about how Scripture's treatment of the, quote, Antichrist, then 1 and 2 John is the only place to look. Here's the second problem. In our current passage, John states specifically that there are many Antichrists. <laughs> And so this whole idea of like a single personality rising up to do all this stuff, uh, I don't see as very biblical. In fact, the Greek uh, that we uh, 
translate into the English word antichrist, the Greek actually means one who opposes Christ. That's it. One who opposes Christ. And so antichrists are those, for John, are those who deny that Jesus has come as the world's Messiah and ushered in this new age. John is trying to say there's a new age that's dawning with the coming of Christ. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah and has, in fact, ushered in this new age, that person is anti-Christ. They have not believed this message of a new day dawning, uh, which means this could be anyone. There you go. Sleep better at night. There's not just one antichrist. There are millions. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) So for John and his house churches, anyone who denied the dawning of this new age, ushered in by Jesus of Nazareth, was an antichrist. Those who are against the ways of Christ or the message of Christ. They were in opposition to Christ and the kingdom of God. That, That is the extent of how scripture talks about the antichrist. Now, there are some other passages, if you, if you go home and Google it, that'll say, okay, in Thessalonians, man of lawlessness, and here and there, and all of that kind of stuff. But I really think that that's trying to do uh, hermeneutic calisthenics. In other words, it's trying to do, get the Bible to do something that you want it to do, uh, rather than just seeking to understand the world of Scripture and then apply it. Okay, so... John is telling people in his house churches all of this stuff because he wants them to do this. He wants them to stay strong in the faith that they have received and to live faithfully as people of this new age. In other words, he's saying these deceivers, these anti-messiahs, is actually a more literal translation, the anti-messiahs in their exit of the church are trying to bring a whole bunch of people with them and are causing a whole bunch of trouble. And what John is, and he, he started these churches, he's overseeing these churches, he has a pastoral heart for these churches, and so he writes to them and he says, no, 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 stay strong to the faith that you have received. You know it, you're doing it right, stay strong. Don't go with these folks who are denying that the light is winning, those who are denying that Jesus is the Messiah, those who are denying the reality and the beauty of the kingdom of Christ. Don't go with them. Don't let cynicism win. The light is winning, right? Maintain hope. Stay joyful. Continue to lean into the truth and beauty of the gospel is what John is saying. And he's trying then very pastorally to remind them to stay strong and to live faithfully as people of the new age. And can I tell you, there is no more direct application to us than this. It was a message for them, it is a message for us. We also, church, are living in the final hour. And by that, I don't mean any kind of prediction at all, except to say that the coming of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection has ushered in a new age, and yet the old age is still hanging around with all of its evil and sin and decay. And so we got to live in the tension of the two ages. But the final hour is here, maintain hope. That's a good word. The overlap of the present age defined by evil and, and sin. And also the age that is co- age to come defined by love and grace. And so just as John said to his house churches, I want to say to you, we are people of the new age. And so as people of the new age, what are we to be doing? Well, John interrupts this important message to give you a message uh, of hope. (laughs) He opens chapter 3 by saying this. 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, for that is what we are. He's doing all of this theological heavy hitting, and then it almost just churns off, and then he goes right into a celebration of what God has done in Christ to bring you into his family, to call you a child of God, that you might be born of the new age. And what John, the very first thing he wants to do is he wants us to celebrate the possibility made possible by Christ that we can be called the children of God. Amen? It is a point of celebration that before we get into all this other stuff and the shoulds and the oughts and everything, we want to have a heart that celebrates that it is even made possible for us to be called children of God. John loves the idea that those who believe, and instead of believe, I want to use a word like trust. Instead of trust, I want to say participate. Instead of participate, I want to say dance, right? That for John, the idea that anyone who believes, trusts, participates, dances has been born of God and made his child. That through faith we are ushered into God's new age defined by light and love. He is inspired by this and he celebrates this. And then as the children of God, he returns once again to the theme of ethics. That is, right belief is so far down the list of importance for John. I I think that right belief is so important. Uh, I spend a lot of my time reading nerdy theological books. Right belief and right thinking is so important. But as we think rightly and we explore Scripture, what we find is that the emphasis in Scripture is always not on what do you say you believe, but on what do you do. In other words, let me to, to continue our metaphor, it isn't so much about how you talk about dancing, it's how you dance. Right? And so he returns right to the, to the, to the topic of ethics. And in verse, verse uh, 29 of chapter 2, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Some translations in verse 29 are, are quite literal, and they say, Those who do righteousness. <laughs> And here's what I want to say. We've often understood righteousness as, as only being high levels of personal morality. And I think that's true. I don't think that we should lose that concept of righteousness. But, but I think that we need to think of it in larger terms. Uh, because anytime that the Bible talks about righteousness, then, then how many of us, if we're honest, just kind of slump our shoulders? Because we're like, I ain't got that. I'm not living up to that. Be righteous. Have God's righteousness. Oh, I wish I could. I wish my life were different. Right? And so, yes, we, we should kind of understand it as, yes, high levels of, of personal morality. Uh, but, but I also want to think of it in terms related to justice. In fact, righteousness and justice are so cle- closely linked, I don't think that we can so easily separate them. And so, what... What, what John is doing is he's saying those who are, are, are born of God, those who are children, children of the new age, what are we then to do as children of the new age? You ought to be going to, and doing righteousness. Uh, that is to say that act justly toward your brothers and sisters or do right 
by them. And here's the problem. If we only think of righteousness as in terms of personal morality, then guess what? It is very individualistic. It is, to what degree have I lived up to what is expected of me? That's it. It's an individual perspective. If we understand righteousness as doing right by or doing justice, then guess what? It requires relationship. Or it begins to frame it in terms of relationship. And so now it isn't just what are the levels of personal piety that I'm able to reach, but now it's am I doing right by my brothers and sisters? Am I doing right by others in business? in my marriage, in friendships, in parenting. And so one of John's encouragements, one of John's markers is to be able to say, are you doing right by others? If so, then you are a child of God. You are a person born of this new age. Because the old age, the present age, was defined by evil and greed and sin and it's all about how I can manipulate relationships to improve myself. But in the new age, as I relate to each other, I want to do right by my brother and sister. Make sense? And then the second thing is he spends a lot of time talking about sin. And how many of you have ever read that scripture and, and like your shoulders go from slumped to slumped, right? Where you're like, those who are born of God do not sin. And you're like, you're like looking at your Monday and you're like, oh man, this is not good, right? Have you ever seen that poem? Like I haven't done this or this or this or this. I'm having a pretty good day, but I haven't gotten out of bed yet, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, so, so let's, let's understand that what John is talking about is, is not Like this, I don't, I don't even know what to call it, but, but when our heart is given over to God and, and in a moment we, we react or we mess up or we res, respond in disobedience or, 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 you know, I mean, a lot of times in relationships, I, I've had something come at me and I've responded to that thing rather than to that person and, and then I said something I shouldn't have said. That's not what John is talking about. He's not talking about like the Christian faith being like walking on this, this really unstable bridge that's going to fall out from underneath us at any time. But rather what, what John is talking about is, is the bent, the direction of our heart. And, and what he's essentially saying is if, if the bent and the direction of your heart is, is toward continual, habitual sin, uh, walking against the ways of Jesus, denying forgiveness, doing all of these kinds of things, then, then you can't be born of God. And so I, I want to set some of you free that maybe felt like your, your faith was a bit like walking a, a tightrope or, or an unstable bridge across a, a huge chasm. That is not the, a picture of the grace of God, right? The grace of God is not a bridge that's, that's unstable that you have to tiptoe on. The grace of God is a solid road of grace on which we can walk. And on which we can be confident of his love for us. And so, I just want to encourage you with that this morning. That when you read this, don't read it as, as every little mess up. 
but rather read it as John is encouraging us and moving us toward having a heart given over 100% to the ways of God. Do you remember earlier in the book, he says, um, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. Slump. But if you do sin, we have an advocate before the Father who is the righteous one. Right? And so earlier on in the book, he's actually protected us from this viewpoint of, of seeing sin as, as this, this dangerous walk across an unstable bridge, right? That, this, that that's the Christian life. Instead, what he has said right up front is, yes, I want the goal for you is to live in doing righteousness. But it, when you don't do righteousness perfectly, we have an advocate before the Father who is the true righteous one. You see what I'm saying? And so I, I encourage you today to be free to walk in the grace of God. And would you be so daring as to offer yourself grace? Sometimes I think one of the, one of the most daring things we can do in our life is offer ourselves grace and forgiveness. Right? And so, again, John points us to the language of the children of God as a reality that there should be some family resemblance. Some family resemblance to the righteous one. I hope this encourages you today, and I, I hope that we have been able to unpack some language uh, to prevent us from reading things in this passage that aren't there, but rather see it for the beautiful message of hope that it is. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us to the Lord's table uh, by way of a, a short communion liturgy, and uh, then we'll have our servers come and find our way along these side aisles, and you can come forward to receive communion. We'll say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can respond with the traditional response of thanks be to God. And then find your way either back to your seat or to the altar as the band uh, plays. And then uh, after that, Rick will come up and lead us in a, in a time of prayer. Uh, and then we'll sing a final song. And so we're, we're almost done this morning, but wanted to take some time to, as we always do, gather around the table to pray with and for one another and to open up his word. So. This is the fourth Sunday of Easter. And so what are we to make of this day and this season? When graves are opened, when the dead are awakened, and when life refuses to be contained. We are to realize that nothing is impossible, that hope is never extinguished, and love is never conquered. And so we celebrate you today, Jesus, because you have made it clear that death does not have the last word. And you have filled us again with hope and faith. You have given us a, a vision of new possibilities, new realities, and new ways of being. May we learn to embrace the mystery of that which we cannot yet fully explain. And may our hearts hope for that which we cannot yet fully see. May we learn to live and to love, even while death and despair are, are around us. Resurrection happened because Christ was first prepared to die. 
But then in defying death, he refused to release his hold on life and love. And so now we choose to gather around this table to remember so that we too can truly live, but only through Christ, who on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so now, Lord of life, we share in this meal, we celebrate together, and we remember you. And we will continue to do this until resurrection has flooded the entire creation. Amen? Amen.